Hello and welcome to this special edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, joining you today from the studios of VOW FM, Voice of Vitz Radio, here on the campus of Vitz University in Johannesburg. And for the very first time doing this podcast in six years, I have to say I'm joined in person by Kobus Fenstaden of Vitz University. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. In person, you actually exist. I actually exist. You know, for those of you who are regular listeners to the show, you'll know that I live in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, where we've recorded the podcast each week via Skype uh, for six years, and yet never met Skype Never met Cobus in person, and here we are. So luckily, it didn't blow up our entire relationship, and the podcast will, in fact, continue. Yes, I'm glad to say. <laughs> uh, now, we're here, here today together today because uh, Vitz graciously invited me to take part in a four-day journalism conference called Power Reporting, and also there's a roundtable on China-Africa reporting issues that's put together by the China-Africa Reporting Project here at the Vitz Journalism School. Uh, they've had a day-long session dedicated to Sino-African affairs, so we thought it would be a good idea to invite Barry Van Wick back to the show to talk about the conference, the roundtable, and the issues that have been addressed among the dozens of African and international journalists that took part in the various seminars that have been going on all week. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Barry is the project coordinator of the China-Africa Reporting Project here at the Vitz School of Journalism, and he's also our partner in building the reporting focax site that some of you may have heard we've been talking about over the past few weeks. Uh, that's a site dedicated to training journalists about the issues related to China-Africa around the upcoming FOCAC summit that's coming up in December. So, Barry, a very, very warm welcome back to the show. Thank you, Eric. And can I just say, you look and sound great. <laughs> I have a face for radio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's great to see both of you guys today. Uh, Barry, before we get too deep into kind of some of the issues that have been raised this week at the various seminars going on, why don't we just start with an overview of what you're trying to accomplish with the roundtable on the China-Africa uh, affairs related to journalism, media, and some of the issues that you've addressed this week with the various journalists? Well, we have, uh, at the China-Africa Reporting Project, we have this event every year, um, which is like our um, annual event for getting all kinds of people together, speaking about a few topics, China-Africa topic. This year, with it, of course, being FOCAC and its FOCAC from beginning to end, we have this event focused on FOCAC. Um, the theme of this year's event is uh, reporting FOCAC 6, a turning point for Africa-China engagement. Um, and we got together about 10, 12 or so in, uh, uh, academics, experts, uh, journalists especially. We got them all together in one room for one day. And we want them all to discuss um, certain, a few certain topics about FOCAC, looking at a few specific things. We have basically two sessions. Um, we had the first session was about public policy. Um, and we had about five or six presentations in there. And the second one was about reporting strategies, which is more sort of things focused on um, the uh, contributions by journalists and, um, uh, you know, reporting the, um, reporting the conference, reporting the summit this year. So um, this event um, happened uh, this year again. It was a FOCAC-focused event. And um, uh, that's a brief, that's a brief summary. Okay. So, you know, you've been spending time with the journalists and with people like Cobus, the academic side. What are some of the kind of key themes that you've been hearing from people about FOCAC and where we are in the China-Africa relationship at this very sensitive time between China and Africa, given the economic challenges that are confronting both? <clears throat> well, um, hold on. Uh, just talk. You're, you have to talk into the mic. Okay, sure. Um, right. So the question is, what are the uh, what are the what are the themes and topics that we're looking at right Actually, now? You've got to talk into the mic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> Sorry, that's the first time I'm doing. That's okay. It. No worries. Um, well, I think broadly in terms of reporting, Fokak, there are a few things that are uh, that are happening now. I think you guys have discussed this as already in your previous podcast. I think the role of South Africa in this in this conference is a is a very interesting is an interesting topic. I think more generally in terms of what response. Um, from Africa, what response does Africa have in this particular conference? What 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 what, uh, what what greater role does Africa have in this particular conference? I think these are all really important topics, but um, I think I'm going to pass that one to you, Kovis. I mean, I think you can add a, add, add a bit more on that. Yes, I mean, we're seeing the first time that China is, is talking with Africa in the in the context of an economic downturn. Um, so I think that, or, or then uh, rather an economic slowdown in China. Um, and that, I think, changes changes the conversation, in, you know, fundamentally. Um, it changes how China can fund, what it can fund, what its role is, the, this kind of the, the role of China as a buyer of African products. Um, all of that changes. Um, so, Eric, you've now actually you, you've done a session. You've now engaged with the, with the journalists around some of these issues. Like, what were your impressions of how they see the the situation? It's interesting because you know talking to journalists here in Africa, as opposed to journalists say in Europe or in Asia about this issue, you would think you get a more sophisticated answer because people are the proximity is closer. And what surprises me talking to a lot of the journalists is how there's still a long way to go before people have any kind of even basic understanding of the China-Africa engagement beyond the simple narratives and the stereotypes and the kind of neo-colonial imperialism. And I still hear a lot of that. So I think this is why the work that what Barry's doing in the China-Africa Reporting Project is still so important. And this goes back to our discussion we had with Deborah Braudigam a couple weeks ago related to demystifying so much of this relationship, because I think that is really one of the big challenges and kind of moving beyond the kind of simple narratives of what we've seen over the past, say, 20 years of when this relationship began. We haven't made as much progress as I would have thought, particularly here on the ground in, in South Africa. I think, uh, sir, can I just come in and I said I think, um, Eric, we are uh, really far away from really getting to any any sort of place where we can say there's a there's a serious looking at both sides of the story, there's a complexity, there's the depth to it, there's, that's just really far away from it. I think um, we, um, I can point to a few specific examples. We, you, you may be aware, Kovis, you're aware as well, we had recently the Mandarin SA schools debate in South Africa. And if you actually look at the research that was done on that, the responses that you get nine out of ten times in radio shows and even in the media, what's written about the media, it's all about imperialism. It's all about, it's all about China is here, why are we not learning other languages? Nobody ever asks, why, do we, why, why are we learning German or French? Because that's just how it's always been. But for Mandarin, if you actually look at responses in the media, what you actually got, it was kind of terrible. It was kind of just, you know, it's, it's the colonialism trope all over again. It's just, it just never ends, you know. That's just one example of how common this is, really. So why do you think that in South Africa, let's focus on South Africa, but I'm sure that a lot of the themes that we see here in Johannesburg and in Pretoria and Cape Town are probably echoed elsewhere on the continent. But Cobus, why do people put this in the framework of colonialism, imperialism, invasion, all of the 20th century, 19th century, 18th century kind of paradigms? I would guess for two reasons. One is that it's you know kind of this is how we're used to thinking about Africa. This is how Africa is used to thinking about itself as someone who was you know kind of colonized, as someone who was taken over. 
that's how the world is used to thinking about Africa. So, you know, kind of we haven't had the, the development of new ways of talking about Africa, not coming from within Africa or coming from outside of Africa. At the same time, I think at the moment... Africa as a whole, but particularly South Africa, is in a process of rethinking 20th century history. There's a, there's a lot of revisionist history going on about what the, the change over from apartheid really meant, what, you know, kind of whether successes or pe what was assumed to be a, a massive success was really a success, what was lost in the, you know, in the decisions that were made in, during the 1990s. Um, and I think in the process there is a, there, there's a more kind of there's, there's a strain of more kind of militants or more activist kind of thinking, you know, kind of um, a rereading of of key um, theorists of, of 20th century theorists who were writing particularly about blackness, people like Franz Fanon, for example. Um, and so we in the we in a a moment where South Africa is rethinking blackness and whiteness and, you know, kind of, and, and what what human rights really means. And, and, and in the process, I think the China-Africa situation is, is kind of falling right into that debate. Well, it's interesting being here in South Africa as an American who thinks about China and the U.S. and how the threat in the U.S. from China is not perceived in terms of colonialism or imperialism. It's articulated best by the likes of Donald Trump who kind of say that China's taking everything, they're taking over, they're, they're taking advantage of us, they're taking our jobs, they're buying our debt, they're, 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 you know, and we're losing our world position to them. But at the flip side, going back to Barry, what you talked about, the language, if you go into any upper middle class community in the United States, where the Upper West Side of Manhattan, you're trying to find nannies who will teach the kids Chinese. Every Chinese language school in Southern California's kind of affluent communities is kind of booked up and sold out. In the Bay Area, all of the bilingual Chinese schools are, are, are you know, you can't get into them. And it's just interesting to kind of sh compare and contrast uh, how the, it's chic and it's in vogue, again, for upper middle class in, so it's a different kind of demographic, but still, nonetheless, people see the opportunity of speaking Chinese as a way to put your kids ahead in terms of getting jobs and engaging. And I would think that here in South Africa, given that China is now South Africa's largest trading partner, there would be at least some voice out there that is really pushing this aggressively to say, you know, this is not an imperialist type of thing. This is an opportunity to give children... Uh, more work opportunities to engage this new trading partner that we've got. Well, that's what you would expect, right? But that's simply just not, that's not really how it happens. I mean, if you, if you, if you see it that way, which is, really, which is really a good way to look at it, if you, if you see China's role in Africa, China's presence in Africa as an economic exchange first and foremost, um, if you look at it like that, it makes a lot of sense in so many ways, right? It, you know, it, it's, it's just there's really an, an economic exchange happening on the most basic level. There's the trade, there's the investment. Once you start poking a bit deeper into that and you look at, you know, like we discussed earlier, if you look at it a case-by-case -case basis, if you look at specific cases, if you look at what specific companies are doing, then it gets really a lot more interesting. It gets a, little, a lot more complicated, you know. But that generally is not really how how it happens. It's not really how the relationship is portrayed in the media because it's simply not, you know, that's not what you would expect to see. It's sort of just, it has to be sort of seen in an overall context. You know, China's here only because it wants certain things. Um, and like you were saying, Corpus, we sort of have the, how can you say it, the milieu, the paradigm in South Africa that, or in Africa as a whole, I would think. If you if you come here, then there's just the only reason that you come here is probably to exploit the continent or something. It's the same as, it's as if we don't really have paradigms to, to see it in any different way. And Added to that as well, the case of China is complicated, you know, because it's, um, 
China is a, it's, it's hard to, it's hard for us to categorize. China is a totally new player. It carries a new paradigm. And I'm not, we were far away from that. You know, I don't think really, you, it's the old trope of we don't understand China, we don't understand each other. And I think it goes both ways. But I think that's, that's you know, we, we're so far away from that. Well, to be fair, I'm not sure Africa's alone in not understanding China. I mean, this is a big problem for many parts of the world, uh, particularly in Southeast Asia. There's a lot of question and concern. Uh, about China as well. So this is a universal phenomenon that China does a very poor job of explaining itself to the outside world, and we do a terrible job of actually learning about it. So Ross Anthony, who's the uh, at Stellenbosch at the Center for Chinese Studies there, one of his big pushes is to try to get more Africans, and South Africans in particular, to learn about China. China, China, not China, Africa. Do you think they're facing an uphill ta- task in doing that? Yes, I think so because because Africa is just you know because so much of of so much of African uh, the African kind of horizon of of thinking about the world has been shaped and warped by this really toxic relationship with the West um, and with it's particularly this its relationship with Europe you know kind of so. I think that is a problem. I think it's a very worthwhile thing to do, not only because China-Africa relations are important and because you know Africans need to know more about China in order to to get more out of that relationship, but also because in order for Africans to think about what a successful Africa might be like, they need to think of development outside of a Western context. They need to think of uh, you know of development outside of. Uh, the small frame of of how the Europe developed, um, you know, kind of. So in that sense, both India and China are, are great. And examples. Malaysia. I mean, and let's Malaysia. not forget that Malaysia is a very big. Brazil's a very big investor here. These are all non-Western players. Exactly. The thing, though, is is that you know, kind of, when you look at China in that context, a lot of what you see is not very attractive. And I think that you know, kind of, it's environmental devastation. It's your rights issue, human rights issues. It's you know, um, a, a very complicated situation in China. And I think some of the kind of misgivings about teaching Mandarin is not only that that they're afraid that South Africa or Africa is going to get more exploited. It's that also there is a, a kind of a, a different theme in that discourse, which is like, oh, maybe if we if we succeed, we're going to be like China, which is not good. Yeah. Barry, you know what frustrates me when we talk about this question of imperialism, colonialism on the part of the Chinese, and, and I say this and I always have to put the disclaimer out there because... I think I, more than you, Cobus, get accused of being a kind of a panda hugger, which I'm really not. Um, but they, people interpret kind of this questioning of the West as some kind of supporting of China, which I'm not. So I put that disclaimer out there. But when we're talking about China being an imperialist, colonialist power in Africa and neglecting the fact that France has 8,000 combat troops not deployed as part of UN multinational peacekeepings, but on unilateral deployments across the continent, Central African Republic, Mali, uh, you know, engaged all across the continent. The United States has bases that are in active military combat, drone bases that fly out of Djibouti. Um, the trade policies of the EU and the United States are still very aggressive towards developing markets, very protectionist. Ironically, the questions about imperialism don't surface in the same context when we talk about the Americans and the Europeans, but yet there's a sensitivity to the Chinese. Why do you think that people do not frame French active military engagements in the the CAR, for example, as a neocolonialist adventure when the Chinese themselves are not deployed here militarily beyond a UN peacekeeping and UN stabilization, for example? 
It just seems like a double standard in many respects. It is, but I also think that it's because there's a certain heritage to that. You know, there's a certain heritage to France, um, the colonial empire that it had in Africa, whereas China is um is, is a real novelty about China still, even though it's not a new. It's China's not now a, a sort of a brand new player. I mean, I, I would always say it probably goes back if you if you look back at China and when it really started becoming very active in Africa. My, I always peg it back to sort of a date like 2004, maybe when it started doing the resources for infrastructure deal in, in Angola, and it really sort of that sort of standard was really laid back then. What I think makes it different for China is that it's a novel player. It presents a totally new. Um, it, it really has. How can you say it's mixed? It's mixed things up a little bit. It's really you know changed the playing field in Africa, and that I think is the real factor about China. What makes it different? You know, it's not a power that's been in Africa for decades and decades and decades and had a certain role that it played in certain countries and it had a sort of a colonial heritage and it, it doesn't have that it's a new play it's using new tactics it's using new tools in Africa and I think that's really that's what makes it different you know that's what makes that's what mixes things up so much well it mixes things up and that confusion I think is also what kind of confronts a lot of people when they're trying to understand it so one of the questions Kobus that you and I often deal with with people is they confuse trade and investment so the Chinese are Africa's largest trading partner in fact new data came out this week that shows that uh, Sino-African trade will reach $300 billion this year, up from 225 last year. So it's a dramatic increase in trade volume. Combined with that data was another report that came out that said by 2020, they're going to hit $400 billion. So whatever we're seeing in the Chinese economic slowdown does not seem to be impacting trade. When we talk about investment, though, it's a totally different story. And so coming back to this question of, you know, a double standard, the Chinese are number seven in foreign direct investment, far behind the United Arab Emirates, the Germans, the Americans, the French, and the British. But yet, they are tagged with being taking over the continent. Again, why do you think we're not breaking through with people, not you and I, but just in general, in terms of understanding the subtleties of this relationship? You know, I have to actually... Some of it, I think, just comes down to bad branding. You know, kind of like China has... So it's their uh, fault. Partially, it's their fault in communicating. Yeah, I think so. I think China China could be much more effective in communicating its position. Um, so, you know, part of that is bad reporting from, from the press. Um, and part of it is, you know, kind of is the is China itself not meeting not meeting the press halfway you know kind of not not you know making not making it easy to get the real information not you know hitting back at misinformation not correcting anyone crouching the moment there's any kind of controversy refusing to comment on anything that's controversial mm -hmm. um, refusing to acknowledge any kind of you know that there are any kind of difficult issues in the China-Africa relationship always trying to, to play it 100% positive mm. and Can I just add, sorry to interrupt you there but what you often hear from journalists in Africa um, when they try to get uh, you know, responses from the embassy, they try to get from Chinese officials. They, 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 they usually just get stonewalled. They yeah. just don't. It's very rare, actually, that you get a proper response. Chinese from companies as well. Same yeah. thing. I've yeah. experienced it in my own research. You, you ask them for comment on completely innocuous things. And then they're like, oh, no, no, we really don't want to talk to you. <laughs> Can I just give a, I, I, sorry, I just want to take this opportunity. I'm sorry to interrupt, because I'm sorry, I interrupted you. I'm sorry about that. But I, um, I, I just want to give a quick example of, um, there was a case in, um, where was it, Malawi, where we, I had a journalist who was writing a story in Malawi about um, a, a hospital that was being built by um, a, a Taiwanese, um, the Taiwan, a Taiwan in Malawi. And when, 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 when did um, the changeover happen? I think it was 2008 when Malawi decided it is actually going to shift its allegiance from Taiwan to China, um, to the PRC. And then suddenly what happened with this one hospital, which was being built by a, by a Taiwanese interest, is that the Taiwanese pretty much just ov overnight 
left. And there is now this hospital standing there, which is actually, it's an ARV treatment center. Um, uh, I think it's outside Lilongwe. That's for HIV. Uh, for HIV, yes. And now this hospital is in limbo. It still has patients coming through it, but it's now sort of half built. And the Chinese who are now um, doing lots of other projects in, in Malawi, they say, well, this is not our project. You know, we, will, we can maybe consider it for the future, but now it's, it's not really our thing. Um, and the journalist was just trying to understand, okay, but what is your commitment to the hospital? You know, is this going to be happening? This is just one example of this sort of thing. This is just not happening. It's a really fascinating case of what happens, and it's very rare because, you know, there's only three countries now on the whole African continent who has sort of still got its allegiance with Taiwan. But um, I'm sidetracking, I'm sorry, but this is one interesting case of, you know, where that just doesn't happen. Which is why one of the invitees at this year's uh, Power Reporting Roundtable Conference on China-Africa is uh, Huang Hongxiang, and he's been a regular guest uh, on the show, and he's becoming quite noted in in the China-Africa community. He's still relatively young. I think he's in his late 20s, and he started up this initiative in Kenya uh, called China House. Uh, And in some ways, I think he's unique because he represents this voice where he's very comfortable in interacting with the West and interacting with English language journalists, but at the same time really brings a very distinctive Chinese point of view. And I guess what I'm hoping is that we will see more Huang Hongxiangs out there, whether they come in an official capacity, whether they come from SOEs or private sector, but people like him who can help better articulate some of the Chinese positions so that when journalists cover the story, they can more accurately reflect the nuance of what the Chinese are doing here, because that seems to be what's missing. So it's Exciting that at the that the conferences and at the various seminars we've had, we've had journalists talk to us and ask us questions about this, and so that we can hopefully move that discussion forward. But I want to come back to my original question to both of you. One, Kobus is a media scholar, and Barry is somebody who's lived and worked extensively around China. I get very frustrated when I see Western media give Western governments a pass. And again, when you see you know, extrajudicial killings by the United States done by drones, which, if nothing else, are controversial at the least, possibly illegal. Um, You see things that are being done by Western governments that if other governments did it, the Western press would be up their backside very, very quickly. But if the United States does it, well, you know, and we're seeing this right now in Afghanistan, in Kandahar with the hospital in MSF, where the United States is saying, we're very sorry about it. We thought it was, you know, a legitimate target. Oops. And the Western press, for the most part, kind of accepts that on face value. Or Russians in Syria. Or Russians in Syria. And I don't see that same type of you know, acceptability with other countries, not just the Chinese. Nor, and I don't want it to. I'm more criticizing the Western media's kind of giving of a pass to their own governments. Well, I think the the case of French troops in West Africa is the good example on that. But it, that was so egregious. It was so egregious, and but it's also been so normalized because it's been going on for so long. So, so let's so just remind everybody that French troops were accused of sexually molesting. These were French troops in the Central African Republic who were accused of sexually molesting children. Uh, and then were discovered and found out and caused quite a scandal. Yeah, I mean, there's that particular incident, but then their general presence in in West Africa as as a whole, you know, kind of feeds into that in the sense that it's just, you know... it, it's so normalized because everyone's so used to it. You know, kind of when everyone's so used to France being in West Africa, and not only 
not only people in France, but also people in Africa. Like, you know, kind of to, to the extent that, that complaining about France's influence in West Africa is itself this weird retro thing to do. It's just kind of like feels like it feels like a 1960s, 70s thing to, to complain about France and West Africa as if they're not there at the moment, you know. So it, it, it changes Europe into this devil we know in Africa. Um, and again, as, as Barry said, it makes China into the new devil. You know, um, so I think we need to break both of those down. Like, you know, kind of, I think, you know, I agree with you. I think people need to be newly outraged, you know, kind of by, by Western influence. Well, I just think that when we're, I think people need to have some, some subtlety a little bit that when we are criticizing the Chinese for doing things that others are doing and have been normalized, then the criticism should be spread more equally and evenly. And that's where I guess my kind of point of frustration, one of the attendees at, at the conference this week you know, when when you mentioned to them that I, I kind of do the China Africa project and they said, well, the Chinese are here for, for resources. And it's such a simplistic kind of view of these things. I, I had exactly the same thing with, um, I had a dinner the other night and was one of the main speakers of the entire conference. Um, and this person literally just, um, you know, when he heard we're into China Africa, he said, all oh, right, well, China's just here in Africa for getting the resources, right? It's such a stale trope and yet it's so persistent, you know? Yeah, I mean... Again, when we look at FDI levels, I mean, a lot of countries are here for the resources, and this is what Africa sells. It's not an unreasonable thing for countries and companies to be here. Well, that's what we're saying. In principle, it's an economic exchange that is happening. You know, if, if we just look at it at the most basic level, then, then that's what it is. It's an economic exchange that's happening. It's not a colonialist exchange because nobody is um, enforcing this. It's not, it's not as if China is forcing Africa to do it, are they? No, I think where the colonial kind of paradigm starts to come into it is some of the debt dependence issues that are starting to arise, the massive levels of debt, for example, in Angola, $22 billion. Now, all of a sudden, Angola starts to lose a little bit of its sovereignty to the Chinese and by virtue of the fact that they simply can't pay back the debt when oil is $50 a barrel. Uh, but there's another area to this, and this is something that was brought up uh, in a speech. And again, I keep I hate to keep mentioning Deborah Browdigan because, you know, we do talk about her a lot. Credit what credit's due. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> uh, but she recently gave a talk, and she talked about, actually, you know what? No, it wasn't Browdigan. I stand corrected. Howard French. Uh, that part of China's kind of strategy in Africa is not about resource extraction. And, and, and that makes sense because when you look at the amount of resources that it's actually extracting out of Africa relative to other parts of the world, it's actually very, very small. Oil, for example, is dwarfed by what they're consuming out of the Middle East and the Persian Gulf. So that context is very important. But he talked about how this is about market expansion for the Chinese. Remember, the Chinese are here to sell. When I came into Oratembo International Airport, I counted five major Chinese companies, big giant ads, Huawei, Lenovo, ZTE, you know, all of them here to sell. And French made this point that this is really an expansion of Chinese marketing and going global to find new markets, particularly in the developing South. What's your take on that? Well, I mean, this, this is my favorite issue because this is what I'm working on is the, the, the influence of newly emerging consumerist identities in, in the global south um, and sorry to be very academic about this but well that's who you are okay yeah, so let's sorry. just kind of accept it I just it. need to own it um, but you know but this is this is really this is a really fundamental development in the 21st century is this thing that, that to put it bluntly that African pleasure matters that people, this is the first time in the history of the world that people care whether Africans are having a good time or not. Um, you know, and so Africans, what they want to wear, what kind of cell phones they want, what they want to consume, all of this is suddenly 
news. This is like Prada is opening shops in Lagos. It's, you know, kind of this is this is what's happening in Africa. And the Chinese are right there. They're right there to fulfill these needs. And what it is eliciting is not only, a you know, kind of... Um, it's a new thing, right? Kind of, and, and what it also elicits is a lot of anxiety about, oh, but is this a good thing? Is it a good thing for Africans to be to be all obsessed about cell phones? And frequently this anxiety does, comes from moralistic Western people, frequently, because what they think is Africans should really be focused on hunger. Which is absurd, um, because who else yeah, is... Yeah, like Luke is talking. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but also it frequently also elicits a lot of anxiety within Africa. You know, kind of because there is, there's a lot of ang of anxiety about that Africa is becoming glitzy and crass and consumerist and you know, like kind of, everybody and, else, and they're basically. losing something. Yeah. You know, kind of so so there's a redefinition of what it means to be African, um, and that and Chinese manufacturing is right there. They're right there, busy. You know, kind of providing the products, advertising to the new people, and so on. Well, one of the points that I brought up in my session this week, uh, talking about you know digital journalism and digital news gathering is there's a revolution going on, and it's in a very, very important revolution, and it's happening not just here in Africa, but throughout the, the developing South, that Chinese companies, more than anybody else, have figured out the magic formula to put together an Android-powered smartphone at a price point of about $60 to $70 for the consumer. So we're seeing this, and the reason why we call it a revolution is because the next billion Internet users are going to get online through mobile. And they're going to upgrade from a feature phone or their first phone will be one of these Chinese-made uh, handsets. And you're seeing it across the continent here. And the reason why I call it a revolution is, again, because it's happening worldwide. And so Xiaomi is now coming into the market. Lenovo, ZTE, all of these companies here are selling this. And that, to me, is going to fuel a consumer demand in so many sectors and going to open up you know, commercial transactions, banking, commerce, all of these different things. When we look at the development of the media space and what the Chinese are doing, particularly with the, you know, the, the hardware infrastructure that they're doing, what's, the, what's your sense, Barry, of where this is going? Um, well, I want to um, touch back on a previous point as well. Um, You're what? a good politician for evading my question. <laughs> no, no, I, That's a great I, I question, really... Eric, but I really want to talk about tax reform. <laughs> I, but I am actually burning to say this. What I think is um, what I just wanted to say as well, what we said previously about the, um, uh, 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 the Chinese, inf um, you know, sorry, I'm uh, haggling now, but see, the, the issue of uh, Chinese, you know, the economic role that they, that they, that they play in, uh, in, in Africa. What I was going to say is actually that there is an indirect impact as well. I was asking previously, is, it, is, it, is there any type of force? Is, you, know, you, you were mentioning the, the issue of the debt. Um, what's interesting to me is that there is often an indirect, and you know, it's in the complexity that, that I think the greatest interest lies. You know, that's often, you know, in the media, we are sort of trained to look for sort of the overall perspectives and to sort of just try and, try and summarize everything. As, you know, that's, that's obviously why we always end up with these sort of these, uh, these, these, these simple descriptions of imperialism, all these sort of things. But um, in my experience in working with journalists all, all over Africa, the really interesting thing is actually where the complexity is. You know, um, take one example. You know, you um, you were mentioning just now there's the, the, the question of cell phones in, in Malawi. No, you, you were mentioning that. I was mentioning this. So the question of cell phones in Malawi that is, a, is a Chinese company now with that exact goal to bring cheap cell phones to people of Malawi, which has never actually happened before. So there's, they, 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 you, they, they, they applying that model to actually doing that. Now, take another example. There's the question that we discussed earlier. There's the thing about logging in Cameroon. So 
you might say, okay, fine, like we said previously, fine, this is an economic exchange. It's just, you know, the Chinese are, you know, are buying up these logs. But actually, when you actually really look at what's going on, this situation is incredibly complex. And what you actually have happening is the Chinese influence indirectly, not maybe directly, but indirectly is actually a little bit malevolent because what you have is that the Chinese, um, uh, Camer- the, the, the people in Cameroon um, often export these logs to Europe. And Europe have has, has sort of like quite, quite stringent requirements of what kind of logs and how these should be, whereas the Chinese do not have any of those requirements. They're quite happy to buy them wherever they are sold in, um, in, 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 uh, in Cameroon. So what you actually have, and this is what I mean by the, by the indirect influence, is that you actually have people in Cameroon where there are now these, these forests which are entirely being put at risk because of this, you know, because the Chinese don't have, any, don't have, very, have much, have much uh, smaller requirements of how they buy these things. So, uh, you know, coming back to your question, it's interesting that um, there are these revolutions happening in Africa. There mm. are these things happening. There are these things. It's, it's, it's very true. That's why, again, you have to come back to the complexity. There are always two sides to this. There's a real benefit that Africa is getting from it. But the indirect impact, for example, like I just explained now, can really be quite malevolent as well. Yeah, I mean, I actually, not to, not to challenge you, but I, I don't like the idea that there are two sides. There's 30 sides. There's 50 sides. I mean, I'm learning about South African politics here in the time that I'm here, and what I'm recognizing is just how layered each issue is with racial politics, cultural politics, national politics, party politics. I mean, the complexity of domestic politics in this country and then infuse international relations of the Chinese or others into that and, and, and multiply that, I guess, 54 countries in Africa, and all of a sudden you get to, you know, 30, 40 uh, you know, layers or sides, if you will. And so it is just, it's vast. And that's what I think is the ultimate challenge for journalists and even academics to to sort all of this out. And so going, Kobus, going back to your point is that people like the simple narratives. And that's why in some ways we see the default. So let's just kind of step back now and let's kind of bring it back to why we're here today as we kind of wrap up our discussion about the conference. What are you hoping, Kobus, that when you bring together academics and journalists, what's the message that you think should be kind of sent when it comes to China, Africa, to these uh, various African academics and, and, and media representatives? Um, I think the important message is for people to be careful about the words they use, to not, to think to think about the words they use. Um, you know, kind of, uh, I mean, we've been complaining about about the concept of neocolonialism for a long time um, on the podcast, and that's just one example. But for, for that's what uh, that's what academics do, is they interrogate the, the kind of words they, the words we use and the, the ways we talk about things. Um, the problem with academics is they can, in, in the process, they can slow everything down to a crawl and it can sometimes be like watching paint dry. Yeah. And what could be, I think journalists can help academics to, to, to sometimes be more bold. In, you know, kind of in, in talking about the big picture and, rather than concentrating on the particular... And there's a lot of lag time between the academic theories making it into the, the bloodstream of the body politic. Exactly, exactly. Because because academic publishing is a nightmare. Right. Um, yeah, don't get me started. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you know, kind of... So, so I think they can, they can help... They can come together to help each other to... You know, kind of the one, the one side helping the other one to be more, more careful, the other one to help academics to be more bold and to, and to look at the big picture rather than particularly focus on detail. Barry, last last point to you. What are you hoping people are going to get out of the various seminars being put on by VITS, both on the power reporting side, but also on the China-Africa roundtable? Uh, 
Kovis, I'm going to respond to you um, for what you just said, and I'm going to say, actually, what I'm looking forward to is the detail. That's really what I want to get to. The detail to me, and that's, not, that's actually not to disagree with you, because I think the detail really is where the greatest interest lies. I mean, I know we, you know, people are media practitioners and academics and whatnot. That's, our, that's kind of our role, to make, it, make these things understood. But I think so far we've just totally failed to really, you know, to create really good clarity out of that. Mm. So, I don't know. In my, in my, in my, in my, in my job, what I do is I, I, find, I find solace in the details, if I can put it like that. That. I find solace to actually look, all right, let's for a moment step back from, you know, trying to understand everything, trying to explain everything, trying to put everything in terms that we can understand it. It's, you know, these words that we discussed, you know, these very emotive words. It seems as if that's all we have. If we want to get to the big picture, that's really all we have. Is that all we have? You know, so what's good for me, what I enjoy is I sometimes find solace in the details where you say, okay, wait, let, let's just push that aside for a moment. Let's look at what's happening in one specific place. Um, let's look what's happening in one specific city, one specific country. You can broaden these things out. Um, if you go from that, taking it step by step, not starting from the big picture, that is sort of what I think is the important thing for us to sort of aim for. I mean, that's what journalists do. You know, kind of, they, they do go out into the field and they produce raw knowledge. When it's done well. Yeah, when it's done well. You know, um, I'll put my two cents into it. What I'm excited about, what I've seen here, you know, this week is just the discussions that are actually happening. And that, that is really a first step. And it, it sounds very basic, but at the same time, people just are not talking about this enough to get alternative views and ideas. The one thing that I'm missing that, you know, my constructive feedback to, to, to you and to the group is I think we're missing some Chinese voices. And I think it would be great to bring in from China and some from, from the community to get that presence and that voice to add to that complexity in these discussions. When we have African voices and Western voices, it, I'd like to see more Chinese voices. And that's where I'm hoping this conversation goes in the future, is to have a really lively kind of you know, multi-layer, multi-layer dialogue, and that will hopefully get us to a more nuanced type of reporting and understanding of the issue. So... That this was the most fun I've ever had doing this podcast. I got to say, it's so much easier when we're actually all together in front of one another. Uh, as we normally do at the end of every show, we like to kind of, you know, drop people off towards social media to, so that they can continue the discussion. There is a hashtag for the Power Reporting Conference. Just look up hashtag Power Reporting, all one word, on Twitter, and you'll see a lot of the discussions that have been going on. Most of it doesn't have anything to do with China, Africa, but it's about news reporting. It's about digital technology. It's about investigative reporting. And so if those are things that interest you, I highly recommend it. Barry, if people want to follow what is going on with the roundtable and what, what we've talked about and some of the issues that the China Africa Reporting Project is doing, what's the best way for them to stay in touch? Uh, Eric, they can get us on uh, Twitter, which is Wits China Africa. That's uh, W-I-T-S China Africa. And I also actually want to just quickly say that there is a China-Africa-Reporting.co.za, which is the website of the reporting project. And I think that's really the place to go. That's really where you can get more detailed information, all the latest things that we do with the project, all the programs that we run, all these sort of things things. That's just quickly again, china-africa-reporting.co.za. And uh, of course, together, here we are in one room, but we together, Cobus, myself and Barry, uh, built a, a website uh, called reporting-focac, that's F-O-C-A-C.com. There are links to the China Africa Reporting Project on there, but it's really a great primer for both journalists and students and observers to better understand the China-Africa relationship. So even though we titled it and focused it on FOCAC. It's something that can last long after FOCAC is over, as we really hope for it to be a, a resource going forward. Kobus, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch? Um, I'm on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Um, we, Eric and I run a 
curated news feed of China African news items that's that runs 24 hours a day. So every few hours there'll be one popping up in your you know in your inbox. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Stadnesk. That's S T A D E N E S Q U E. And curation is a very important part of what we're doing at the China Africa Project. So the idea is that on Facebook we kind of filter through all of the different stories on Google. Every four or five hours we'll put one up. Also on our various Twitter feeds, mine's at E O Lander E O L A N D E R. I'm tweeting the top. China Africa stories almost every day. And also, we've got a newsletter that goes out every Monday. If you want to sign up for that, just head over either to our Facebook page, click the sign up button, or on our website, you'll see a sign up there. Just put your email in. And every Monday, we'll send you four or five of the top stories. Again, highly curated. It just in case maybe Twitter and Facebook is a little too much for you to take every day. Uh, and then, if you want to follow this podcast, of course, the best way all the dots and W's into iTunes, get us and by looking up for China and Africa, and you'll find the China Africa project. It comes right up there. Hit subscribe, and we would be so grateful, so so grateful if you leave a review or a comment or a like because it helps other people find the show. So we'll be back again next time. Not sounding anywhere near this good uh, on the China Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>